The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastabl.org. Welcome to Steadfast Church. Uh, if you're new around here, um, we're really thankful that you would take time out of your Sunday to be with us, uh, to worship uh, with us, or just to sit here while other people worship. Um, if you are new and you want to be known, uh, there's a little connect card there in the pew in front of you. You can fill that out at any point during the gathering. Let us know that you are here. And um, the back side of that's for prayer requests. So for all of you, uh, if there's a way that we can be praying for you, any issue that you're facing, uh, we take prayer very seriously. We'd love to pray for you. So you can fill that card out. Just drop it in those black giving boxes on your way out of the, of the door. And uh, Easter was great, wasn't it? For those of you who were here, uh, man, I'm not, a, I'm not a numbers guy really, but um, I think it's worth reporting because this is the first Easter of our combined church as uh, Missy O'Day and, and Bent Creek came together as one just to show you the Lord's blessing uh, we had almost 600 people here Sunday. Uh, yeah, praise God. Um, and we got to baptize seven. So that was incredible. And uh, yeah, the Lord was so kind to us. So um, we're going we're gonna to start next week a new teaching series looking at the life of David, King David. Um, but, but we had this sort of in-between week. And so I felt compelled to talk about the gospel uh, we talk about the gospel every week, but I wanted to talk specifically about what I'm calling, or it's not original to me, but what some call gospel fluency. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Colossians chapter 1. Um, this might surprise some of you while you're, while you're turning there. Um, I did not grow up in the church. Um, I can't remember really darkening the doors of a church much. Uh, in the first 15 years of my life, my, my parents did not go to church. Uh, but around the age of 15, they uh, had some sort of midlife crises, I suppose, and started attending a little Baptist church near our home. And uh, they kept asking my, my brother and I to go, like every week, just like, you're going to come with us this week? You're going to come with us? They never made us go, and they probably should have, but, but they kept encouraging us uh, to go. And finally, I went just to kind of get them off my back. And uh, I remember walking into this Sunday night youth group. It was like maybe six or seven kids, you know, including my brother and I. So like we almost doubled the group. And um, 22-year-old youth pastor, and uh, he opens up John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not per perish but have everlasting life. And something about that. I did not go there looking to meet God. I didn't feel like I had any spiritual need in my life. But when he explained John 3, 16, the Holy Spirit did something. And I was like, I need that. And so I went to him and I said, hey, that Jesus thing you're talking about, I think I need that. And I think it freaked him out because he went and got the senior pastor <laughs> to pray with me on the back row of Berea Baptist Church. And, and, and my life hasn't been the same since. Now, here's the, here's the reality, though. I wasn't a bad kid. Uh, I made good grades. I mostly obeyed my parents. Um, but I knew I was full of pride. I was super judgmental of other people. Still working that out. Um, as a 15-year-old kid, I, I more often than not was mastered by the desires and passions of my flesh and my lusts. And, and I had this thing in me since about age five where I never felt like I was good enough or measured up. And so I was full of shame. But now I'm a Christian. Now I surrendered my life to Jesus. Now what? what how do I live this Christian life? And Sadly, here's what I heard. Now, I'm not saying this is what they said. This is what I heard. What I heard was attend church, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night, choir practice, business meeting, come to all of it, and get rid of your secular music. And my thing was always like, but Christian music at the time was horrible. Why would I give up secular music for this garbage? Um, <laughs> But unintentionally, um, spiritual activity, religious performance became the measure of spiritual maturity, except it wasn't, right? I was clueless. I had no Christian friends. I had no 
uh, discipleship, really, a, a few years, or really a year later, my parents split up uh, due to infidelity. The youth pastor got married and left. I had, no, I had not been discipled. I had no Christian friends. I did not know how to live the Christian life. And I still had all this stuff in my life that I thought would just sort of melt away, and it didn't. And the more I focused on trying to be good, the, the worse I felt. And, and so I just could not seem to kind of get my act together. I don't know if any of you know what that feels like. And so it just heaped on shame more and more and more. And um, eventually, due, due to those circumstances and just the fact that I was so burned out from trying to be good, I, I walked away. And I wandered for four years or so before the Lord in his kindness drew me and Christina back to himself. And I say all that to say, it wasn't really until even getting back involved in church, it wasn't until I began to learn the language of the gospel. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. It wasn't until I, I started to learn the language of the gospel that I actually started to see growth and change in my life. So when I say language of the gospel, the gospel is a message for sure, right? It's a, it's a simple message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. But it doesn't just stop there, right? The gospel is a simple message, and yet it is rich and deep and complex, and the implications of the gospel are far-reaching to every aspect of our lives. And so in that way, it's like learning a new language. How many of you know another language? I barely know English. Any second language speakers? Okay, a few of you. Okay, two languages, anybody? Okay, anybody know three? No, oh, we got one who knows three. Um, so if you've learned a language or attempted to learn a language, which I assume most of us have attempted that at least, you know that in the early stages, you're just learning definitions and words and trying to, in your mind, go, okay, this means this, right? Um, and, and you're doing this translation in your brain. But once you get fluent in a language, what starts to happen is it becomes almost second nature, you start, you're able to interpret, you're able to understand, you're even able to articulate without having to uh, do all that translation actively in your brain. You've internalized that language to the degree that the other languages can sort of flow out of you a little bit. And that's our hope, is that you and I, with the gospel message, that it becomes like another language to us that we learn, and we become so fluent in the language of the gospel that we're able to apply it to our own lives and to the lives of one another and see growth and see maturity and see development as Jesus would have us. Does it make sense? Okay, so we're going to be in Colossians 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 14. Uh, we'll kind of skim over some of this as we work through here, but uh, as I read it, just follow along, and then um, I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in here. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, um, it is good just to be still in your presence this morning. I don't know what my brothers and sisters have carried in the doors with them. 
the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the frustrations, the joys, the gratitude, the hard things, the good things. But we come here this morning. We drove all the way over here because we want to meet with Jesus. We want to hear from you, Lord. We want to respond to you with faith. And so help us. As we look at this passage, I know for some this is a very familiar text of the scripture, but would you give us new ears, new eyes, and for some of us new hearts this morning that we might see wonderful things in your word, that we might hear you speaking to our souls, that we might um, respond to you with faith and repentance and that you would, in the midst of whatever we've carried in, that you would give us a joy, an unexplainable joy, an unsurpassable joy in Jesus. And so we ask this in your beautiful name, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Now, as we look at verse three, Paul is thanking God that these Colossians who had previously been pagans, that they've believed the gospel. They've actually become Christians. There's been a definite change in their identity because of Jesus. He says here in verse three, we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. So faith in Christ and love for one another as the church, those things are always in the Bible inextricably linked. If you have faith in Christ, you will love his people. It's just how it works. But this, the foundation of this is, he says, hope. Because of, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So he says, you have faith and you have love. And this is rooted in hope. And, and hope, biblically, remember, is not like... Um, I wish it to be so, but I don't know. Hope biblically is a confidence. It's an assurance. It is, um, as one pastor put it, a life-shaping certainty. That's what biblical hope is, okay? And this hope came through hearing and understanding the word of truth, which he says is the gospel. So that brings us to a question. What is the gospel? Okay, now my first point here, if you want to take notes, is defining the gospel. So let's think about this for a minute. What is the gospel? It's the good news, right? That's what gospel means, good news. The good news about what? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, here in Colossians 1, if you just skip ahead to verse 19, you'll see a little gospel nugget, okay? Uh, in Colossians 1:19, he says this, For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, that's us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's some good news right there. I think of um, Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, the author says, um, the, the priests still stand daily offering sacrifices, but when Jesus offered once for all time the sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he said this. He says, and he has by a single offering perfected, past tense, those who are being sanctified. Meaning, in Christ, if you have surrendered yourself to Christ, you are already perfect in his sight and you are working out that perfection for the rest of your life. Uh, I'll give you another one. Romans chapter four, Jesus was lifted up onto the cross for our transgressions. He was raised from the dead for our justification. Justification meaning our declaration that we are right with God. Or one of my favorites, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not just righteous, the righteousness of God. Do you understand? This, this is good news. 
okay? Jesus did not just come to die for us, he came to live for us also. He came living a perfect, sinless life, fully um, uh, fulfilling every righteous requirement of God's law. And then Jesus goes to the cross and at the cross, God condemns our sin in condemning Jesus. Our sin being the root of our sin that we want to be the authority, right? We reject God's gracious authority in our lives. We want to be the authority in our own lives. And so thereby we say what's right and wrong. We uh, disobey God's commandments. We, we reject God's presence in our lives and we wanna be our own savior. And so Jesus is condemned for our sin. God condemns our sin, our failure, because in condemning Jesus, Jesus owned all of our wrong as if it was his own. And when Jesus Christ was, was nailed to the cross and he cried out, it is finished, you know what? He meant it. Past, present, future. All of your sins paid for in Christ in full. The penalty, penalty is paid in full. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering our real enemies of sin, death, and hell. And so now for any who would with empty hands of faith receive the finished work of Jesus, we are so united with Christ. We are, we are so united by faith into his death, uh, in his resurrection, that his death is our death, that his life is our life, that we are so welded to Christ that the Bible says that we are in Christ and he is in us and, and he is with us and he is for us always, forever. So that Christ, by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, provides for us, supplies for us everything we need for life and godliness. Stupid little example. This has helped some people. Okay, let's say you go to the bank and you're like way behind on your mortgage, like months and months and months behind, right? You can, you, the, the debt you owe is so great, you can never pay it off. And you go in the bank and the bank goes, hey, um, good news. We're just gonna call that good. We're gonna cover that debt, that payment, and you're free to go. You'd walk out happy, right? But you know what else you'd walk out? Po, you po. And to stay out of future debt, you're gonna have to keep it up. You're gonna have to work really hard to make sure you don't get back in that same kind of debt again, right? So it's incomplete good news. But what happens you go to the bank and they say, hey, listen, not only are we gonna cover your debt, but there was a benefactor and he gave us this debit card. It's a real heavy one. You should, here, hold this. And you're like, ooh, that's heavy. And, um, and he goes, and it has unlimited, you can never like overcharge it, unlimited resources. So you can just swipe this sucker wherever you want and you will never have to pay the bill. Uh, it's, it's yours to keep and use forever. Then how would you feel? Woo, <laughs> right? But how many of you know when you walk out of the bank, you're not going to charge up $4,000 in, in like new clothes? You're humbled by that, aren't you? Holy smokes, somebody would do that for me? And you would manage that really well. That's the gospel, okay? Everything that we need for life and godliness is provided for us. That is the hope that's laid up for these Colossians in heaven. That is the hope that has changed them, that has transformed them, that has um, changed their entire world. That's what the word of truth does. And it wasn't just that the truths of the gospel had become clear to the Colossians, they became real to their hearts experientially. Um, Jonathan Edwards talks about this, that um, I can tell you that honey is sweet or you can taste it. And there's a difference, right? You can know the facts about the sweetness of honey. Uh, Watson has some great bees who make some amazing honey. I shouldn't tell you that because then you'll want some and I won't get as much. But um, <laughs> I can tell you about how amazing that honey is or you can just taste it for yourself. And there's a difference. Knowledge plus experience equals reality. This is their hope. So here's my question. Where's your hope? Where's your hope today? Is it in Christ in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for me? Or for example, is your hope in, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty good. Um, because pretty good doesn't get you into eternity with Jesus. In fact, the Bible would say that all of our righteous deeds apart from God are as filthy menstrual rags. Sorry to be graphic, but that's what the Bible does. 
You want to put your hope in yourself? That you're pretty good? Hmm. This is the gospel. This is where we start. This is where we stand. This is where we stay. Not in what God demands from us, but what God has done for us in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, this is not where Paul stops, though. This is where a lot of churches stop. This is not where Paul stops. So hang with me here. Let's look at verses 5 and following. I want you to see Paul deploying the gospel now. This is my my point here. Deploying the gospel. Okay? Verse 5. So he says, the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Notice Paul's language here. This is very important. He says, the word of truth, the gospel, has come to them, okay? So uh, it, it came to them, it was, it was proclaimed to them by Epaphras, uh, the gospel was proclaimed, they believed it, and it has brought real change to their lives. And that's what the gospel is doing even to this day around the world, right? The gospel is proclaimed out of the mouths of proclaimers and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the word of God, souls are transformed, souls are saved, right? Their eternity is changed forever. But this same gospel, he says, continues to change and transform. He says it is bearing fruit and growing among them. Now, this word among can also, and I think more rightly be translated as in or within. So he's saying not just that the gospel is is bearing fruit around them, as in other people are getting saved, but this same gospel is bearing fruit and growing within them. There's fruit being born from the gospel within them, even as believers, since the day they heard and understood the grace of God and truth. So from the day of their salvation up to whenever Paul wrote this, there has been a continuation of growth, the gospel bearing fruit in their lives and, and, um, and, and multiplying and growing inside of them. Does that make sense? Okay. In other words, the gospel is not just a static message that we hear and believe one time and it's the sort of doorway into the kingdom of God. It is that, but it's more than that. The gospel is a dynamic message. It's the pathway of the kingdom of God. It's, it, there's a power to the gospel, not just to save us, but to sanctify us or to grow us. And so the more that we learn the language of the gospel and learn how to apply it to our own hearts and to the hearts of those in our communities and in our family and our friends, the more that we'll grow, the more that we will all become like Christ. Because here's the reality. Here's what I know. All of us have a past. Even you goody two-shoes, church kids, choir boys, you have a past, don't you? Not everybody knows about it, but you know. We all have a past. And many of us still carry degrees of guilt and shame over our foolishness and our failures. There are many of us who still feel anxiety deep down because we cannot seem to get our act together. The problem is, even as Christians, we tend to base our standing with God on how well we're doing. In other words, we base our justification on our sanctification. If I'm doing well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to church, I feel good about myself and I think God likes me. And if I curse somebody out in traffic and I yelled at my kid and, you know, I spent more money than I should have, I feel like God hates me. Can anyone relate to that? And for many of us, the only way that we know how to affect change in our lives is through appeal to the will and the emotions. We use things like guilt and fear and shame in order to do some behavioral modification. How well does that work, folks? Sadly, many churches are really good at it. Many parents are really good at it. In reality, we're all pretty good at it. Using guilt and shame and fear to try to manipulate our behavior. And and it works for a little while. But eventually it wears us out, it exhausts us, and we give up. Um, Or we kind of white-knuckle it and actually get some conformity to 
you know, morality in some sense, and we think, look what I've done. Until we fail again, and then we feel miserable, and we think God hates us. And so what we say to ourselves is, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder this time. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to clean myself back up. And then when I present myself back to God, he'll be like, look what you've done. And I'll, and I'll feel good about myself. And then I'll fall again. And I'll go right back into that cycle of insanity where I try to pick myself up by my bootstraps, clean myself up, present myself back to God as if I have anything worth presenting in the first place that he'll smile on me, but I fail again because I'm human. And then I feel miserable and I run from God until I can clean myself back up and then I run back to him. Does that cycle sound familiar to anybody in this room? And so we may look on the outside like we have got our act together, but we know that on the inside, we are radically insecure. And we are easily slighted and we are easily angered and anxious and depressed. And we have this gnawing feeling inside of us that we are not enough. It's the cycle of insanity. And I think there, there are many good reasons that people are untying theological knots and um, methodological knots within the church. Deconstruction is very popular. Some of it's actually good. But I think some people are deconstructing and walking away from faith because this has been their experience. The cycle of insanity, which isn't Christian gospel. It's not even what Jesus came to do. You should get rid of that. Now, why do we do this? Why do we get caught in this cycle of insanity? Because the default mode of the human heart is performance-based acceptance. Even as Christians, we all slip back into a performance-based acceptance. That's what our entire country's built on. That's what all of our careers have been built on, right? And that's how a lot of us parent our children. And it's evil, The gospel deals primarily with the heart. When I say heart, I don't just mean like our emotions, like that gushy feeling when you fall in love with someone. That's not what I mean by heart. The Bible describes the heart as the control center of your life. Um, the, the center, the seat of your trust, the center of your motivations. So, um, Proverbs chapter three would say, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So the heart can understand, okay? Um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, I believe it is, um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your treasure and your heart are linked together. Jesus goes on actually in Matthew chapter 12 to say, um, out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words, our actions are connected to what's actually going on in our heart, our motivations, the control center of our lives. And so the gospel, this good news that we just talked about for like a while, um, it reverses that natural inclination of our, of our lives to base our acceptance on our performance. And it says, your acceptance is based on your performance just not yours, on Jesus's performance. That he was perfect in your place and he died for you and his righteousness is credited to you. And now you're acceptable because of Jesus. You're standing with God. Your justification is unchanging. It is secure because of Jesus. And that should motivate our sanctification, our growth, our, our desire to be more like Jesus. You're telling me that you know me like the real me all the way to the bottom and you still loved me enough to die for me and to credit me with your righteousness, then yes, I wanna be like you. Yes, I wanna follow you. I'm gonna trip and fall on my way there, but I'm coming after you with all I've got. And it's only people, this might shock some of you, but I believe this is true. It's only people, the only people who actually get their act together, you know who they are? It's people who are absolutely sure that even if they never get their act together, Jesus still gives them his best. So for example, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, he talks, it, it, there was a letter between, between him and a, uh, a friend about how the enemy would come and attack him in his thoughts, okay? Some of this might sound familiar to you. And the enemy would accuse him of all kinds of wickedness. So um, I'll just read what it says here. It's well known that in his writings, 
Luther would refer to visits from the devil, how the devil would come to him and whisper in his ear, accusing him of all manner of filthy sin. Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous. I don't know what that means, but it's bad. A blasphemer, a hypocrite. Here's what the enemy said. You can't stand before God. How many of you felt that way on a Sunday morning before? You, you're going to go to church? You're going to show up there, you hypocrite? Right? Accusations of the enemy in our own heart and mind. So here's what Luther would say in response. Remember, this is, the enemy said, you're a liar, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You can't stand before God. And Martin Luther would say, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. <laughs> but you know what? My savior has died for all my sins. Those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those that I have committed, but am so wicked, I'm unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. Hallelujah. What a savior. You see how different that is than work hard to get my act together and present myself back to God which is sadly what so much of Christianity has become. So finally here, Paul wants to help us see how we dwell on the gospel. So um, I'm gonna give you some, some practical outworkings of this because I believe this can apply to every facet of our lives, but I know some of you right now are going, okay, what, what does this even look like? Um, verses nine to 14, Paul's gonna help us. He's praying for the growth of these Colossians, but I want you to notice where he bases that growth from. Look at verse nine with me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so Paul wants them to dwell on or even dwell in the gospel. And here's, here's what he's doing. He's praying for their growth right? To know God's will, to grow in wisdom and understanding and obedience, to walk in a worthy manner, to please God, to have fruitful lives, knowledge, strength, endurance, patience, joy, gratitude. This is what he's praying for. God, do these things in them. And what's the catalyst for that? Is it Sunday school? Church attendance? The 10 commandments? the gospel. Four things he says here. You've been qualified. You've been delivered. You've been transferred. And you have redemption. And all of them are passive and past tense. What has been done. In other words, our growth, our maturity comes from remembering or dwelling on what has been done for us. It says, he has qualified us. You see that? He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what happens, okay, let's just think about this practically. What happens at work when you're attempted to cover a failure? When, when, when you know you're going to look bad in front of other people because you've done something wrong or you haven't measured up and you're tempted to sort of, maybe a little white lie, just bend the truth a little bit, just cover, so I look better. What are you trying to do in that moment? Qualify yourself. I'm trying to prove myself. I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to say, look at me. I, I didn't do wrong. I only do right because I'm amazing. You're trying to impress people. 
But when you know that even on your best day, you still fail to measure up before a holy God and he knew that about you and sent his only son to die in your place so that you would be qualified and there's nothing you can do to qualify yourself because Jesus did it all. And there's, by the way, also nothing you can do to unqualify yourself. That you have an inheritance that's eternal and unperishing in Christ. Now you can own your, your junk, right? Now you can own your failure. You can go, you know what? I made a mistake. I know it's gonna make me look bad, but my inheritance is secure. I'm qualified in Christ. Does that make sense? I'm free. I'm free to say, hey, you know what? Big L, I missed it. I, I, I dropped the ball. It could even get me fired. But I, I am free to be honest about failure. I don't have to try to qualify myself because Jesus has qualified me. He has given me an inheritance. Okay, then he says, does that make sense? Okay. Then he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his, of his beloved son. Okay, he has delivered us. So what happens when the next time that you feel so bound up in a particular sin, you can't get out of it, you can't get free. You feel like this thing owns you. Okay, I'm not, I mean, maybe it's porn, maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's overspending. Maybe it's lying. You're just so bound up in this thing, you feel like you can't get free. And you remember, wait, I'm delivered. I remember very clearly, I was probably in my early 20s and I was driving in my truck and I had a CD of the Bible, okay? And so uh, I'm listening to the scriptures and it got to Romans 6. When Paul talks about how we, are, we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. And... And I was like, there's something wet coming from my eyes. And it, because here's the thing, like I felt mastered by some particular sins in my life I couldn't seem to get free of. I thought I was a slave. And the reality is I was just not to sin, to righteousness. I belong to Jesus, not to this sin. In Christ, there's power to overcome this sin. Jesus came and was delivered up for my transgressions so that I could be free. Amen? Okay, and so when you know you're, you've been delivered, he has, he has broken the bonds of sin over you. It doesn't mean you can't give yourself back over, but it means it doesn't control you. It doesn't have power of you. It's not your master. Jesus is your master. You can get free. He has transferred us from the darkness, uh, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of God. Okay, so what happens the next time that you feel anxious? Fearful, insecure, there's too much month left at the end of the money. What do we do? He who was rich became poor for my sake so that I might become rich in him. He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills has welcomed me into his own kingdom. I am rich in him. I have everything I need. I don't have to be anxious. I can cast all my, my anxieties on him. I don't have to be fearful. He is sovereign and in control of my life. I don't have to feel insecure because my security is sure in Christ. You see? He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us of all our trespasses and sins. So when you feel guilt and shame over your past, when you can't seem to get over those feelings of guilt and shame, what do you do? Try really hard not to do something that's gonna make you feel shame again? Or remember that you have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. And when Jesus says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. It's forever. Past, present, and future. Thank you very much. This is where real power comes from. I, I, I would like to go on and give you more examples, but, but I'll give you some questions at the end that maybe will help you um, work this out. I know those were very simple and some of you are like, yeah, but I still need to pay my bills. How does that work? I, I got you, okay, I understand. I can only do so much in a sermon unless you wanna be here till like 4.30. We don't wanna do that. So 
This is where real power comes from, okay? Be- but but here's, the, here's the problem. Because the gospel is so counterintuitive to our souls, it takes constant getting used to. Um, I've used this example before, but I think it's a good one. Um, how many of you in the room are lefties? Left-handers, raise your left hand. Okay, we got a few of you. Okay, the rest of us are righties. Okay, so those of you who are righties, just I'm gonna do this. Um, if you've ever injured your right hand, where it wasn't as usable, okay? You gotta do everything with your left hand. And what does that mean? That means you're gonna go real slow, right? Because with your right hand, it's natural, it's easy. It's just boop, 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 you don't even think about it. But with your left hand, you gotta be intentional, gotta be deliberate, gotta be slow, right? Because you don't wanna destroy things. Um, And so you've really gotta focus on using your left hand to do what your right hand normally would do. The gospel, in a way, is a left-handed message to us righties. It's not, it, it's counterintuitive. Like it makes sense on some level, but what's natural to our own hearts is um, stop doing wrong, start doing right, get your act together, what's wrong with you? That's what we understand. That's the world we live in, right? That comes naturally and easily to us. That makes sense. But um, to hear Jesus from the cross say, it's finished, it's done, it's earned, it's achieved for you, that takes getting used to. So we, to reorient our lives around the truths of the gospel means we have to slow down. We have to be deliberate. We have to really focus and, and think through in order, okay, for example, when am I tempted to think or feel or believe or act in a way that's contrary to Christ? And what is it that my heart really wants the most in that moment? That'll point me probably to an idol, something that I want more than I want Christ. And how is Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection already provided for that thing that my heart wants the most? And what would happen if I actually embraced what Jesus freely offers me by grace? You see? But in the moment to slow down and stop and go, okay, let me ask these questions of my soul. It takes, it's work. It takes, it's effort. And truly, the the gospel, I'm never going to be a lefty. I know a lot of people think I am because I wear my watch on this hand. I'm just weird. Um, I'm never going to be a left-hander. And so in in that way, the gospel is never going to feel completely natural or completely obvious to my soul. It's going to take dependence upon the spirit of God to massage those truths into my soul. And, And you're the same. And so progress, growth, is not so much our behavior as much as it is getting the gospel in a certain area of our lives, maybe for the first time, and understanding how it applies and, 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 and stepping into and, and uh, embracing the truth of the gospel for my own heart. That's maturity. That's growth. And it will lead to behavioral change, right? But behavioral change isn't the marker. It's the, it's the understanding of the gospel. It's, it's becoming fluent in the language. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's what I want to do. Um, I've got questions, and I, I just said them, but I'm gonna, we're going to put them down one more time. You can write them down. And here's the thing. You can do this to yourself. You can do this when you're in um, community group, you know, uh, you can do this just sitting down at lunch or coffee with a brother or a sister. And you can, you can, as you're talking about life and the struggles you're having, you can, you can sort of ask these diagnostic questions and help see the, the, the language of the gospel in your conversation and how it applies. And maybe that'll start to bring some change. So here's, here's the first question. When am I tempted to think or feel or believe or act in a way that's contrary to Christ? So maybe you think about your work situation. Okay, um, oh, I deserve a promotion. I'm unseen at work. Okay. Or maybe it's your parenting, you know? I just keep losing it on my kid. Maybe it's loneliness or fear or something about your identity or old patterns of sin that you fall back into. Okay, when am I tempted? What, what are those moments where I'm tempted to think, feel, believe, act in a way that's contrary to Christ? Okay, second. What is it that my heart wants most in those moments? 
That's the second question. This is actually two. So how has Jesus already provided is question three, but how is, what is it my heart wants most in the moment? So I feel unseen at work. I want to, I, I deserve a promotion. Okay, what is it I really want? I want to be noticed. I want to be justified. I want people to look at me and say, you're worthy. Hmm. Okay, uh, I lose my junk on my kid and I just yell at him and I shouldn't. Okay, what is it my heart wants? I want them to obey. Yeah, but I want to be in control. I mean, you can go on and on, right? What is it my heart wants most? That maybe will point you to something that you are clinging to. If I could only get this, then I'd be okay. Okay, question three. How has Jesus already provided for that need and that desire through his finished work, through his life, death, and resurrection? How is this thing that my heart desires, okay? Um, I want significance. I want, I want to stand out at work. I want people to notice me, but okay, well, all my performance leads me to hell, but Jesus noticed me. He came, gave his life for me, credits me with this righteousness. He says, you matter. How has that need already been provided through what Jesus has done for me? And then the last question that would be actually number four, what would happen if I actually would embrace what Jesus has to offer me? What would happen if I was like, okay, you know what? Because, because Jesus says I matter, I don't have to matter to my boss. Because Jesus is in control of all things, I don't have to be in control. And, and he orders my whole life. What would happen if I embrace what Jesus has to offer me? Okay, so um, these are just for you to take, right? Take to brunch or lunch, take to community group, uh, take to your devotional time. When you're struggling with a particular situation, uh, you can pull these questions out and go, okay, what, how do I learn to apply the language of the gospel into this area of my life? I hope that's helpful. We're going to revisit this, um, not in a series, but probably, you know, a few times a year, we'll come back to other passages of the scripture that help us see um, how to become more fluent in the language of the gospel and apply it to everyday life. Um, but here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to respond to the Lord um, through communion and singing. Uh, communion is something that we do every week here. Um, it's, you don't have to take it every week, but it's offered every week as a means of grace for us to remember the gospel. I don't know if you noticed this, but our liturgy is, is a rehearsal of the gospel, right? Who God is, our confession of sin, our assurance of pardon in Christ, that's all gospel. Then we preach the gospel in a sermon. Then we have response. We do communion, which is a rehearsal of the gospel. Then we sing gospel-centered songs, right? So we're trying to uh, get the gospel into your heart and your ears at least three or four times every single service. And so in communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that it was, it was Jesus's body broken to make us whole. It was Jesus's blood spilled to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness, that our identity, our justification is secure and set in Jesus, he loved us enough to give himself for us. And so we come in faith and we come in repentance, turning away from sin and self and turning back to Jesus. And we come and we take the bread and we dip it into the juice or the wine as an act of remembering and worshiping Christ, okay? And so um, you're gonna be welcomed in just a few minutes. There'll be four stations here. There'll be servers at each station offering you the, the plate with the uh, gluten-free wafer and also bowls, juice and wine, whatever your conscience allows. And you can come and they will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And there's no magic in what they're saying. It's just a blessing they're pronouncing on you as you partake. If you're not a Christian, you can just stay seated. This is not for you. Uh, but for those of you who are believers and want to participate, it'll be offered. We'll start in the very back row. So you back row people, uh, you will come first when I dismiss you, and then every row uh, following will come. The, the front will go last. Um, just makes the flow easier that way. And so let me pray, and then we'll move into our time of response. Uh, servers, you can come down, and the band's going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a few songs as we respond to the Lord. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the gospel, this beautiful gospel, which does save us, but also sanctifies us. And um, Holy Spirit, I pray that something that's been said today would, would stick to our, our backs and um, find its way into our hearts and that we would remember um, that it is not that you get us into the kingdom and it's up to us to stay in. It's that you carry us all the way through. Um, that our growth um, is gospel growth as much as our salvation is gospel salvation. Um, Lord, the, the, the older we get, the more that we walk with you, with the, with the beauty 
of the gospel just loom larger and larger and larger in our lives. We need this gospel. This gospel gives us freedom and life and vitality and joy. And that's what we want. We want you. So Lord, if there be anybody in the room this morning who does not know you, who has not experienced salvation through the gospel, I pray that even this morning in their seat, they would confess their sins to you, that they would receive you with empty hands and, and um, embrace the truth of your gospel for themselves. But for the rest of us, would we walk out encouraged that though the enemy attacks us, though our own conscience attacks us, our salvation is secure in you and let that motivate us to, um, to grow in our understanding of truth and also in our holiness. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would be honored and glorified as we respond to you now. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. We pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Let's just be seated and still for a moment. When I get up, the tables will be opened.